Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 81, Lawrence Rosenthal, Eyewitness Identification and the Problematics of Blackstonian Reform. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Larry Rosenthal. Larry is professor at the Fowler School of Law at Chapman University. Among other things, Larry teaches civil rights, First Amendment law, criminal law, and criminal procedure and his research broadly spans constitutional and criminal law. Our podcast today features Larry's new article, Eyewitness Identification and the Problematics of Blackstonian Reform of the Criminal Law. In it, Larry tackles the problem of questionable eyewitness identifications, but with a twist. The vast majority of the literature on eyewitness identifications and notable recent cases on the subject, like State v. Henderson in New Jersey, in various ways have all tried to impose more rigorous judicial gatekeeping of eyewitness identifications. Larry, however, questions this trend. He argues that in our quest for accuracy, we need to remember that there are two kinds of error. It's not just false positives, the usual concern over wrongful convictions. Rather, there are also false negatives, excluding evidence of guilt that would otherwise help convict the guilty. These two types of error necessarily represent a trade-off, and perhaps prophylactic rules concerning eyewitness identifications tip the scales a bit too far in the other direction. Larry's contrarian position is sure to make you think hard about faulty eyewitness identifications and what we should do about them. Larry, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Your article starts out with Manson v. Braithwaite, the Supreme Court case from the 70s, which has been much maligned by commentators, but which you basically defend, or at least explain. Let's start there. What did the Supreme Court decide there? Well, in Manson... There was what commentators like to call a suggestive procedure. An undercover police officer makes a drug buy, and the only thing they need to do to make the case is to identify the seller. So the narcotics detectives are pretty sure who the seller is, so they send one photograph to the undercover officer. Is this the guy? The officer opens up the envelope, sees the photograph, says, yeah, that's that's the guy. Now, the social science literature will tell you is a suggestive identification because you're basically telling the witness, isn't this the right guy? The Supreme Court nevertheless holds that official suggestion without more doesn't deprive anybody of the right to a fair trial or the right to meet evidence. Instead, we need to assess the reliability of the identification in light of the totality of the circumstances. And the court winds up holding that the undercover officer's identification was reliable. Now, the social science research in the intervening years 
is very critical of this kind of approach. For one thing, there's really pretty compelling evidence that there's a significant error rate in eyewitness identification. And the eyewitnesses rarely perceive that they might be mistaken. Eyewitnesses over, have overly high confidence in their identifications. And even worse, there's pretty compelling evidence that juries overbelieve eyewitnesses. And so this notion that we can just assess reliability in light of the totality of the circumstances has been much criticized. And commentators have been advocating more robust approaches because if you just let juries consider this evidence, the argument goes, juries will overbelieve the eyewitnesses, so judges need to act as gatekeepers. And the wave of DNA exonerations in recent years has certainly added momentum to this case for reform. And being something of an iconoclast, as I assessed the case for reform, I became increasingly troubled, and that was kind of the genesis of, of this paper. So it's interesting. I mean, if you think about it, it's a lot like Daubert in some sense, even though it's in a completely different context. It's the theory that juries really can't handle this evidence, so we need the judges to step in as a gatekeeper. Tell us a little bit more about some of these alternative regimes that have arisen trying to impose judicial gatekeeping. So the most famous case, I think, is this Henderson case from the New Jersey Supreme Court. But there are a bunch of other regimes that have cropped up. Well, you know, it's interesting. It was reading Henderson that more than anything made me uncomfortable with the case for reform. Henderson, as you point out, is, is quite famous and, and very much praised among legal scholars. It's a case in which, at first blush, there's real basis to be concerned about the identification. What happens in Henderson is the, this, the eyewitness is named Womble, and he's up basically all night on New Year's Eve, smoking crack and drinking champagne. And at some point, two guys burst into the apartment that he's in with the victim, Harper, and guns are produced. One guy is familiar to Womble, a guy named Clark, but he doesn't know the other guy, or at least he doesn't know the name of the other guy. So while Womble is being held at gunpoint, Harper is taken into the next room. Womble hears gunshots, and Harper winds up dead. Now, when Womble is later asked to make an identification at a lineup, and, and what's happened in the interim is, is that the homicide detectives who are investigating the case have threatened Womble at least a little bit. They've suggested that maybe Womble was involved in this crime. So they've already put a certain amount of pressure on Womble. And then they arrange a lineup where he's asked to identify the guy he didn't know, Henderson. And at first he can't make an identification. So the detectives confront Womble in violation of the New Jersey Attorney General's guidelines, which say there ought to be a neutral blind administrator for these identification procedures. And they basically accuse him of holding back, being afraid to make an identification. And only then does Womble make his identification. Now, that sure seems like official suggestion. And the New Jersey Supreme Court eventually holds that whenever the defense can make a threshold showing of official suggestion, courts need to hold an evidentiary hearing. 
need to make findings on all the variables that the social science research has identified as bearing on the accuracy of an identification. And only after making those findings should the court ultimately rule about whether the identification should be admitted or not. Now, the reason I go through the facts in, in such laborious detail is that there was one set of facts that jumped out at me when I read the opinion that all the law review articles praising Henderson ignore, maybe because I used to be a prosecutor. It was this part of the opinion that jumped out at me, but it was the following. When the police first talked to Womble and he admits that he was present at the scene of the shooting, he says he knows one guy, Clark, but not the other guy. So the police scoop Clark. And what does Clark tell the police? Yeah, I was there. And I brought another guy, Henderson. And then the police go and scoop up Henderson. And what does Henderson say? Henderson says, yeah, I was there. Now, Henderson denies having done a murder, but he says, yeah, I was there. I was the guy with Clark. So in other words, two witnesses that have absolutely no motive to lie on this point, both the defendant Henderson as well as the accomplice Clark, they acknowledge that Womble's identification of Henderson was right. Henderson was the guy with Clark that night. In other words, there's no reason to be distrustful of Womble's identification. Nothing unfair about letting a jury consider it because there's no real risk the jury will overbelieve Womble. Womble's right. And yet, we're supposed to have this elaborate pretrial procedure about the accuracy of the identification. And a judge is empowered, if the judge wants to, to exclude. And in fact, if you were to apply the holding of Henderson with integrity and consider only these specified variables, they should have excluded the identification. The lower courts, though, somehow managed to admit it on remand because it's absurd to exclude an identification in this matter. And that, I think, is the virtue of the conventional approach. We assess all evidence in light of the totality of the circumstances. If a rape victim makes an allegation, we don't say in the abstract that that allegation is reliable or not. The way the law of evidence always handles it is you have to assess the victim's testimony in light of the totality of the evidence, and ultimately the jury makes a decision. That's the conventional approach of the law of evidence, and the argument that eyewitness identification evidence should be handled any differently is really not very satisfactory. Now, let me back up just a second. So Henderson sets up this pretrial hearing, kind of like a Daubert hearing, one thing that was interesting that I learned from your paper is that there are also states that are even more restricted than New Jersey, where you effectively have something akin to a per se exclusion, right? Yeah, New York and Massachusetts and Wisconsin have what the Supreme Courts of those states have characterized as per se rules. And yet one of the things I spend some time trying to demonstrate is that courts are constantly circumventing those per se rules, finding ways to avoid them, because in cases in which the corroborative evidence is really compelling, the idea that you wouldn't, for example, let a rape victim testify 
that the guy who raped me is sitting there at defense counsel table. That's pretty tough. And so even in the states with so-called per se rules, they just don't follow those per se rules. Okay, so background set. And now I want to turn to your primary conceptual point, which I think in some sense might both explain why the per se rules and cases like Henderson just haven't had a lot of teeth in practice, and also your position, which is why you think that Manson may in fact be the right approach. What's the problem with gatekeeping this kind of evidence? So why not have effectively prophylactic rules or procedures governing eyewitness identifications? Well, I should start by saying I'm not opposed to all gatekeeping. There are certainly going to be cases in which the campaign of official suggestion is so powerful and so abusive that a gatekeeping role is appropriate if for no other reason than to deter misconduct. But with that caveat, the real problem with prophylactic rules, if you assess the way that they work in practice. The case for prophylactic rules is strong when there's a high error rate in case-by-case -case adjudication. And because of the high error rate coupled with the cost of case-by-case -case adjudication, you adopt a prophylactic rule because you think that you're probably going to reduce the error rate. A simple prophylactic rule in the law of evidence might be that in general, you can't tell the jury that the defendant has a prior conviction. Now, theoretically, you could have case-by-case -case adjudication in every case. Do we think the jury in this particular case will be improperly influenced by evidence that the defendant has a prior conviction? But in general, we think the risk of error, unfair prejudice, is so high and the ability of a judge to make a tailored case-by-case -case assessment about what the risk of error is in this case is so low, better to have a prophylactic rule because prophylaxis is going to reduce the overall risk of error. Now, what the social science research shows when it comes to eyewitness identification is that when you use more rigorous identification procedures that are designed to reduce the risk of error that will comply with what opinions like Henderson are asking for. One example might be in lineups, whether in person or, or what's more common today, photographic lineups. If there's only one picture that really looks like the suspect, that's a kind of suggestion where the witnesses are more likely to make an identification because really only one of the pictures comes even close to resembling what the witness remembers. So one of the ways you reduce suggestion is by making the fillers, the other, the people in the lineup who are not the suspect, look more like the suspect. Now what the data shows is that when you create greater filler similarity, that's the, the phrase the literature uses, what winds up happening is the rate of false identifications goes down, but the rate of accurate identifications goes down even more. 
And what you wind up happening is the ability of witnesses to make any identification is greatly reduced. So in other words, the overall error rate is not reduced. It actually rises. The errors are reallocated. You're going to have a greater proportion of false exonerations as opposed to um, false identifications. But the error rate isn't reduced by prophylaxis. So the policy argument for prophylaxis really doesn't withstand scrutiny. And the only thing you wind up with is what I refer to as the Blackstonian argument for prophylaxis. And the Blackstonian argument for prophylaxis is we're not indifferent as between false exonerations and false convictions. Blackstone's original ratio was made in the context of the law of evidence. Blackstone writes that we should be weary of admitting evidence of felony because the law prefers the acquittal of 10 guilty men to the conviction of one innocent man. So that's the famous Blackstonian ratio. And the argument for prophylaxis is even if we don't reduce the error rate, at least we can reduce the rate at which people are falsely convicted. The problem with that argument is that it has no stopping point because there is an error rate in all evidence of guilt. If you want to reduce the number of false convictions in rape cases, don't let rape victims testify because there's going to be an error rate in those cases. But if you wind up excluding all evidence that raises some sort of risk of false conviction, you wind up having no criminal justice system left. Now, the advocates of reform recognize that and they say, well, eyewitness identification presents unusual and heightened risks of errors. The problem is they can't actually prove that. There's really no data establishing what the overall error rate is in identifications in terms of false convictions or false acquittals. The best you can do is you, in laboratory conditions, you can identify the rate at which somebody who is not the simulated suspect nevertheless gets identified. Whether those laboratory conditions carry over into real trials is, is hard to tell, especially because unlike laboratory experiments, at real trials, of course, there's a lot more evidence than just the identification. And if there's sufficient corroborative evidence, even an identification that might be shaky in the abstract after it's corroborated might be quite satisfactory. But whatever the error rate is in eyewitness identification evidence, we have no idea how that compares with the error rate in other types of evidence. Stephen Duke of Yale, for example, wrote a very powerful arg article arguing that probably the very highest error rate you're going to find is the error rate that inheres in testimony based on conversational memory. What did the defendant say? Because we make all kinds of mistakes when it comes to conversational memory. It's hard to document that error rate because DNA evidence does a fairly good job of identifying false convictions in the kind of cases where DNA evidence is dispositive, which usually is 
sex crimes as well as homicide. But cases based on conversational memory, there's nothing like DNA evidence that can expose that error rate. But it might be quite high. So the notion that eyewitness identification evidence presents some kind of unique risk of error in the criminal justice system is really a proposition that as an empirical matter can't be sustained. That raises something of a more fundamental issue, though, which is what do you do in terms of evidence rules when you don't have a lot of data? And I think that characterizes a lot of our evidentiary rules. We're basically making guesses. Either we're basing them on traditional guesses or more modern guesses. And as you say, we don't have a lot of evidence of what those rules actually do, particularly if you start thinking about second or third order effects. So you impose a rule, then people change their behavior. So now you have additional things to worry about. What are we supposed to do in this context? I mean, it seems foolish in some sense to just guess. It seems also foolish to just stick with tradition. And yet we can't really be paralyzed by the lack of information. So why is it that relying on the jury to do a totality of the circumstances approach, why is that the way we should go? Well, I guess I have two thoughts triggered by that question. The first is that there is one aspect of our jurisprudence that unquestionably is Blackstonian, and that's the burden of proof. The burden of proof in criminal cases beyond a reasonable doubt, is expressly adopted because we are not indifferent to the risk of error. So we start with a system in which the jury is told to resolve doubts against the prosecution. So in the face of empirical uncertainty, the burden of proof offers defendants some very meaningful protections. I'm certainly not suggesting that there's no such thing as false convictions. We know that there are false convictions. Although interestingly, the advent of DNA evidence suggests that the rate of false convictions in those kinds of cases will be much lower in the future because we're going to have DNA tests available in order to clear people in those kinds of cases going forward. The second thought I have is that in the face of empirical uncertainty, these are policy questions that are best left to politically accountable institutions like legislatures. Now, legislatures have made some efforts at reform in this area. Most of the legislative reforms have been pretty modest and in the main legislatures have resisted exclusionary rules. They've asked for more rigorous identification policies, but have been reluctant to enforce them with mandatory or even presumptive exclusionary rules. But the virtue of leaving these matters to politically accountable institutions is that if they err, that becomes the subject of the next election. It's not as if we have a let's convict the innocent lobby in our politics. Protecting the innocent has political currency, as does convicting the guilty. But, you know, it's, sometimes it's easy to forget that, you know, judges are just lawyers. They're not trained social psychologists. They don't have any particular expertise in addressing these kinds of extremely difficult empirical questions. And for judges to go about creating these kinds of exclusionary rules 
in the face of radical empirical uncertainty, I think is quite dangerous. Final question for you. What's next? Where should this debate over gatekeeping in the context of eyewitness identification go next? Well, I think what we, what we really need is more field study because what we really don't have and uh, what it would be incredibly valuable is if we actually could have some randomized studies of differing identification procedures under field conditions. We've got plenty of studies of how identifications work in the laboratory, but those studies are unsatisfactory for a variety of reasons. People in, in lab experiments aren't experiencing the kind of stress that real witnesses are, and you don't have the variety of corroborative or undermining evidence that you have at a real trial. If we were to have randomized studies, it's easy to understand why in the real world police departments are resistant to randomizing in that way. There was one randomized study in Illinois, and there was a lot of criticism about the way that was done. It's not clear that that study proved a whole lot. But that's what we really need. To me, the very most interesting result of the empirical inquiry here is that the, the studies actually tend to show that less rigorous identification protocols when witnesses are permitted to, say, view the, the, all the pictures before making an identification so they're able to make relative judgments who looks like the suspect the most. A looks-like identification, the studies to date show, actually, as a statistical matter, is more likely to be corroborated by independent evidence than identifications made through more rigorous protocols. So that suggests to me that the pendulum is probably swung too far. A looks-like identification really can have a lot of power in the context of all the evidence in the case if there is indeed compelling corroboration. So I really don't have any problem with the notion that defendants ought to be permitted to call expert witnesses, to educate juries on the dangers of eyewitness identification, or that judges can give special instructions on the dangers of eyewitness identification. I should add that the studies to date suggest that neither of those approaches is all that significant. Jurors tend to go with their intuitive judgments about whether a witness is correct or not, despite expert testimony or special instructions. But in general, I think that the pendulum is going to start to swing back uh, as people recognize that a system that really makes it unduly difficult for a witness to make an identification is one that doesn't have purchase, which is exactly why in the states with per se rules, courts have been unwilling to follow them. And that's, I think, the way that this debate as a whole is going to turn out. Well, Larry, thanks for taking the time to talk about your really interesting take on gatekeeping in this context. I, for one, have long appreciated your courage in stepping outside the box and challenging conventional academic perspectives, and I think you've done that again here. So great having you on the show. Thank you very much. Larry made several important moves during his podcast segment that really got me thinking. 
The first starts with the well-known trade-off between false positives and false negatives. But then Larry kicks it up a notch. He notes that the available evidence suggests that the current methods used for reducing false positives in eyewitness identifications cause not only an increase, but an outsized increase in false negatives. From an accuracy perspective, then, imposing some kind of prophylactic rule against suggestive procedures may not be justified. Sure, we can rely on the Blackstone principle to preference reducing false positives over false negatives, but there's good reason to believe that the Blackstone principle really should be imposed only once, not repeatedly throughout the proof process. This observation of an outsized increase arguably might make eyewitness identifications different from other contexts where we exclude evidence. There's at least a belief that gatekeeping expert evidence, on balance, increases accuracy. And the same goes for other evidentiary rules, like hearsay. The next interesting idea is that if one cannot justify a rule on straight accuracy grounds, namely, if you're going to impose a rule because you want to preference one type of error over another, then that move really should be done by democratically accountable bodies. Now, one can certainly argue with this. After all, the Constitution embodies values that often preference the rights of the accused. But Larry's basic principle still holds some attraction. If the legal experts can improve accuracy, then they should. But if what's going on is a value judgment between false negatives and false positives, then the reasons for deference to courts and judges are diminished. Finally, I want to revisit a question I asked Larry in the interview, which is what we should do in the absence of social scientific evidence. I generally disagree with assertions about radical indeterminism. I generally think that we can learn things about the world, even about complicated interactions, and then we should act on what we learn. But there's also no denying that in many areas of evidence law, we really have no idea. And the question then becomes, what should we do in those areas? In those situations, Larry may have a point. If we don't have strong evidence that a rule will improve accuracy, maybe then the default should be free proof, particularly given our traditions of the jury. But if we do that, the rules of evidence as a whole might look very different. No longer would they be accuracy-driven, because we don't have enough data to do that. Instead, the rules would be primarily about fairness, much like Larry's exception for outlandishly manipulative or suggestive behavior by prosecutors. Funny enough, an evidence code based primarily on fairness rather than accuracy is exactly what some scholars have proposed. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn. 
and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.